This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101, we will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively, fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon? Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Hello again, all you diggers out there, and welcome to the next installment of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's ongoing series, Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. This is the place where we take an in-depth look at a wide range of topics, all of which are connected to rock music in their own unique way. Today, we are pleased to bring you an interview I did on September 20th with Jimmy Blue, the frontman and driving force of the Jimi Hendrix tribute band Kiss the Sky. So let me stop you before you can ask, why interview a singer in a tribute band? Well, that's a fair question. It's true, there are thousands and thousands of tribute bands devoted to different artists of widely varying quality.
stand up next to a mountain And I chop it down with the edge of my hand We put it to you, dear listeners, that this one is special. Jimmy Blue and his band have been at this for almost 50 years. Hendrix himself passed away in 1970, and this band started up two years before that rock and roll tragedy. In addition to his band performances, he currently tours the country giving lectures on Hendrix on college campuses, TV, and radio. Jimmy actually met Jimmy in the late 60s when they were both living in New York, but more on that in due time. Billy Cox, Hendrix's bass player in Band of Gypsies, occasionally joins the band on stage to play. The point is, this guy has a lot more street cred than your average tribute band leader. He's insightful, down-to-earth, and has a lot of interesting opinions on rock music, history, and his own performances. Jimmy Blue and Kiss the Sky will appear on the hit show The World's Greatest Tribute Bands with host Katie Darrell on Access TV on November 16th, 2016. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my discussion with this thoughtful and dynamic performer. So, without further ado, here's Jimmy Blue. Christian Swain here with the Rock and Roll Archaeology Projects, Deeper Digs in Rock. And with us today is Jimmy Blue from Kiss the Sky, a Jimi Hendrix tribute band. So, Jimmy, first of all, let's get your background. Tell us, uh, you know, where you were born and uh, where you went to school and uh, how you got into music and, you know, the basic biography stuff. New York City, born and bred. Student of High School of the Performing Arts, and that's before it moved to Lincoln Center. And uh, for those of you not familiar with that, it's the school that they did the movie Fame with. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, And it was, believe me, it was just like that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Dancing around and the whole thing, out in the streets, over cars. Yes. uh, Wow, that's awesome. And that wasn't exaggerated at all. Yeah, that's the way it was. It was it was crazy. Okay. Uh, after that, I went to Berkeley College of Music. Um, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. That um, uh, that's that's pretty special. I mean, uh, Ber- Berkeley the School of Music is uh, you know you, you got to be really good to get in there. Uh, I have a brother in law that went uh, in oh. the eighties, so no, I know a little bit about it. Yeah, and uh, back then when I went uh, early seventies, you had the master still alive. So uh, let's say Duke Ellington or Miles Davis would come to town. They come to Berkeley. Everything stops. There's an announcement over the uh, loudspeaker and class are dismissed because what you would do is head to the auditorium for a master class with these masters. 
with Count Basie and Duke Ellington and all, all of them. Whenever oh. they come to town, they got to go through Berkeley. Wow. And, uh, and so they would say maybe two sentences, which your teacher didn't teach you in school, that would just put it all in perspective for you. You know what I mean? That's why those classes were important back then. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So uh, who else did you uh, get to sit and listen to? Oh, man, I can just see that the list is just amazing. Really? Uh, Really? Yeah. What years? What years was that? This I went from seventy one to I would say the middle of seventy three. I actually left Berkeley to go on tour, opening for Farquhar and Aerosmith. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And, All right. Uh, oh, yeah. That was right at the peak of Foghat and Aerosmith there. Yeah. Actually, Aerosmith had Dream On around yeah. that time. Uh, they were riding that hit. And I kind of asked my teacher, should I leave school? And, <laughs> and the teacher said, yeah, he probably did what I just did. Well, of course, that's what you're here for, right? Is to yeah, you know, make your living funny. in music. Uh, well, he, he said you can always go back to school, but the experience you're going to get with that, you can never get again. So uh, get out of here. Yeah. Oh, good for you. Thing. All so, right. So, that, so you went on tour in 73 with those guys. Yeah, but around that, around 73. Uh, began now, that must have been with an original band, right? Yes. The band was from England called Science Fiction. Okay. I answered an ad in the Boston Phoenix for them. Uh, they were looking for a frontman guitar player. And I, I toured, and it was great. I haven't stopped since. Uh, I backed up many uh, classic, many famous classic people, both black and white, which is important because it gave me a perspective on the music that I was uh, coming up in. And I needed that experience, you know what I mean? I, I really needed that. For instance, b- playing behind Wilson Pickett is uh, a little bit different from opening for Slate. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's kind of our point with the Rolling Stones. Uh, the Rolling Stones were a blues band, but they well, they were great because they were a bad blues band. So yeah. <laughs> they came at it from a different perspective. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was, so it was great, man. And uh I would say the late 80s, the early 90s, I got signed to Columbia Def Jam Records, and uh, Russell Simmons was my manager. Really? Wow. Yeah. The Russell Simmons, huh? Yeah, he signed my original band. I had an all-female band. Oh, okay. What, and what year was this? This was uh, the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it sounds like Prince stole your idea later on, because I know he had an all-female band here at the end. Yeah, but the thing that made the deal go sour was that I was living with the musicians. <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't quite like that. Uh, between you and me, that never works. <laughs> well, I mean, I've done it seven times, Christian. Uh, well, you are experienced, my friend. Yeah, most definitely. So. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all in all, I've been doing a Hendrix tribute band since 1968, and I never stopped. Yeah, let's talk about that. So, I mean, that that is the, the, the meat of our discussion today, is yeah. that uh, you are in Kiss the Sky, a Jimi Hendrix uh, tribute band, and that is going to be on Access Television's uh, World's Greatest Tribute Bands in November, right? Yes. So, yeah, 1968, uh, I've read your biography, so I guess we got to go there now. So tell us about meeting Jimi Hendrix. Well, okay. Uh, well, Jimi used to come by performing arts uh, when he, he used to drive and had no license. <laughs> okay. So he used to drive, uh, usually Corvette Stingrays, and he used to drive because Buddy Miles um, was dating a lady whose daughter went to performing arts. Ah. So when they would leave Manny's, which was on 48th Street and P- Performing Arts was on 46th, they'd usually stop by and they'd sit on the steps 
Manny, Manny's is the sandwich shop, right? No, Manny's is the music stop. Oh, okay. Store, the okay. famous music store that all the musicians, you know, went through and passed through. Okay. If you read the Jimmy Biles, he was always there. Uh, so uh, they would, they you know, on the way back to wherever they would stop by, and uh, they would sit on the steps of performing arts. So I was in the fan club when we knew they were there. We would leave the class and just go downstairs and go outside and hang. Uh, it was that kind of a thing. Wow. Yeah, okay. I mean, in my junior year of high school, uh, I was really chasing the, this one girl who was just, oh my God, she was just an amazing looking girl. And she was a groupie for like Zeppelin, for Grand Funk Railroad, and all of my favorite bands. So to follow her, uh, one day she came to school wearing a button that said the Jimi Hendrix fan club wanted to reprise records. And I wasn't quite familiar with Hendrix then. Uh, I heard a little bit about him. So in order to follow her, I joined the fan club. The next time she went to Warner Reef, <laughs> I signed up. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you and me got in this business for exactly the same reason. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It never fails, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to tell you the truth, Christian, I wasn't really into Hendrix uh, at first. He wasn't my favorite. I wanted to be the English rockers. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, at that time, they were king. You know that. You know that's the the age of the Beatles and the Stones and the Animals and the Who and the Kinks and the Yardbirds. You know, uh, the Americans uh, couldn't quite compete. Well, '68, you're starting to see the you know Buffalo Springfield and uh, the Birds and mm-hmm. uh, and some of those guys that are are really starting to come back and and swing back at the guys from the UK. So so I could see that. I'd probably be uh, be right there with you. I, I've kind of always been more of an English guy than an American guy. Um, I say that in my growing up, but, you know, and I look back and I see who I really love. But today, you know, I, I recognize talent everywhere. So, all right. So did you meet him just briefly and have a, have a small discussion, that sort of thing? No, actually, uh, every time Jimmy was in the, I should say, the tri-state New York area, we went to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few members of the fan club. The guy never really knew my name. He would acknowledge us. He was very serious about his fan club, so he would acknowledge us. And there's one incident that I, I usually tell everybody because this set me straight for the rest of my life. And this is when I knew that this guy was deep. Uh, one day we were sitting on the steps of performing arts and I had a gig coming up. So I'm like bragging about this gig and he kind of over, he must have had something on his mind, but he kind of overheard and looked in my direction. So once I saw he looking in my direction, I just went on loud out. Oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. I got this gig and I'm going to be a star, blah, 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 blah. And uh, he said, really? So w- w- what are you going to be doing? I said, oh, I'm going to be doing Purple Haze and Foxy Lady and blah, 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 blah. You should come on down and blah, 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 blah. And he says, when you're doing you, I'll come to see you play. <laughs> now, Wise words. You. you know what I mean? Yeah, now, yeah. That was it. Yeah. That was for me. Um, that set me straight to find out who I am rather than trying to be him. Right. Right. You know? uh, that that was really poignant for me. So that uh, kind of set me straight. I bet. I bet. So I take it you went and found you. Oh, most definitely. I, um, I'm very happy who I am, even though I do a Hendrix uh, tribute. It's like I'm an actor. When the, you know, when the performance is finished, I put the you know character in the closet. And that's it. Oh, so it's a yeah. It's not method acting where you have to walk around twenty four seven as uh, as Jimi Hendrix. It's uh, you know stage acting of inhabit the role and then uh, move on. So when did you start the first Jimi Hendrix tribute band that uh, you were in? 
in, in 68, the end of 68. Oh, right then. Yeah, what happened is I was doing a James Brown tribute. And uh, with, with a few famous people, actually, today, uh, Craig Haynes is the, the son of Roy Haynes, mm-hmm. uh, jazz drummer, and also Tom Brown, a trumpet player. Uh, they were in the band. We were doing the James Brown tribute. I was James Brown. And uh, actually, the same girl who I was telling you about, I was chasing, she knew somebody whose father did the actual Monterey Pop, was one of the cameramen for Monterey Pop. Uh-huh. So we leave school, we go over her house. And we're, we're all sitting at about six or seven of us. And the, the father comes in and sees us. He yells at us for smoking pot. <laughs> then he says, I want to show you something. And he puts on the raw footage of Monterey Pop, unedited. And I got off on Otis Redding because, like I oh, said. Oh, he steals that show. show. Otis Redding is the, he was the, like, wow. the man for that show. And yeah. all of a sudden, I saw the Hendrix footage. And I said to myself, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I stopped. Uh, doing James Brown, I got um, my father bought me a guitar, and that was it. Um, I haven't turned back since. And like I said, he wasn't my favorite guitar player. I was going at that time. I was going to go. I was seeing Mark Farner of Grand Funk Rail. I was seeing yep. Chicago. Yeah. Uh, Steve Howe for Yes. I was oh yeah. Guys for two dollars. Right. Back, you know, and it, these were my heroes, or Jimmy Page and cats like that. I had long hair. Um, I even took my high school, uh, what is it, the graduation picture with a headband on. I was a hippie. You know, I didn't want to be Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was black. I didn't want to be him. I wanted to be, <laughs> you know what I mean? I wanted to be English. Right, uh, right. You know, that was my mentality. Um, so. So you didn't play guitar at that point when you were doing the James Brown tribute, and now you've picked up the guitar. Are are you naturally left-handed? Yes. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. So so that's a good start. So then you learn to play the guitar, and you you start this Jimi Hendrix tribute right then in about '68. Yes. Actually, I didn't learn to play guitar, and guitar was my secondary instrument to get into performing arts. Oh, okay. 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 I got in uh, as a vocalist. Trum- no, as trumpet, actually. Oh, okay. And uh, oh, so you you're have a multi-instrumentalist. To secondary okay. instrument. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, guitar was my secondary. I was always playing rhythm guitar. Uh huh. Uh, but uh, no, I was actually, you know, always messing around in Queens, New York with the guys, you know, on guitar here and there, just playing the little, you know, the blues thing. But uh, once I saw Jimmy, that that was it. And that was right at the end, uh, right when um, Electric Lady was released, the end right. of 68. Uh, that was it for me. That album, that was it. Um you know. And then you really became a fan. Uh, still, not yet. Oh, still, <laughs> still, Steve Howe yeah, is more man. important than Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Page, especially the oh, way yeah, Page, he interplayed yeah. with Robert Plant. And you know, there was a few times I saw him. I was right up close. I was right there, man. Uh, and uh, that's that just blew my mind. I always wanted to do that with a a rocker singer. You know what I mean? That's what I wanted to do. So no, and it was uh, actually Jimmy got me. He talked me into going into Berkeley to taking the test. Okay. Because he was taking the correspondence course at Berkeley. They didn't have, you know, the internet and stuff back then. It was the writing mailing course. Yeah. Quincy Jones convinced him to take that because Jimmy was getting more into jazz. So he was telling us about Berkeley, this this new school that was just blowing everybody away because it was a jazz curriculum and blah, blah, blah. Wow. Okay. I went. Yeah. 
Wow. So, so actually, you've been in a Hendrix tribute band for almost 50 years now. Yes. And uh, I had a fan come see me last year and he told me I'm probably the longest running tribute artist, not just Hendrix. Because he did, he said he did research on Elvis tributes that are, that are not still around today. They may have begun in the fifties or the sixties. The guys are not still around. Um, and he says he know of no other tribute artist who's been, done this for forty-seven. I'm going on my forty-eighth year now. Yeah, this, yeah. I thought um, you know I was doing a little looking myself, and I, I'd seen Rain a couple of times, a tribute to the Beatles, and they started in 1975. And of course, yeah, they're Elvis impersonators that uh, go back before then. But you know, uh, anybody could put on a white jumpsuit and a pompadour, and you know, go, oh, oh mama, uh, you know. So this is another level here, uh, uh, what you're doing. And same thing with the way Rain was, you know, which then turned into Beatlemania and a Broadway show and all that other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So why why do you think there's so many bands that are playing tributes to single artists today? You know, why do you think the public's so enchanted by these tribute performers? Well, because, you know, as the saying goes, what does it say? Nostalgia always breeds profits. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, a lot of people miss their favorite band, you know, miss what they were about. So they get to relive that magic and they're offered the next best thing to seeing their favorite band. And to a lot of people, that's important. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I can see that. I think more, you know, uh, the the better tribute acts, you know, like yourself, like Rain, you do get that sense of uh, of nostalgia. I'll tell you, of all the things that that I've seen, seen Cirque du Soleil's love, the Beatles' love in in Vegas. Boy, I'll tell you, that hit me hard. That was uh, that was really special, and it kind of you know it's kind of like it's a tribute to the to to the music of the Beatles, but it also like uses the characters that are throughout their songs in the Cirque du Soleil production, and it's 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 really crazy. But hey, there's nothing like an old fashioned rock and roll show. Uh, I know it. That's what I try to do, uh, and uh, that's what you try to do. Uh, so you know, there, it's that feeling of of what you experience you know to your point nostalgically in our youth and yeah you know the funny thing I, i'll tell you i'll tell you a little story this is just a, a quick little rant but you know i, I played a, a gig on friday and this time i was in a place that i played a bunch of times normally kind of an older crowd but recently it had begun to shift and there was like what i thought were a bunch of 20 somethings that turned out to be a bunch of 30 somethings that just kind of shows you how old i am uh, and uh they all just they didn't like dance or they didn't like they, – they didn't have the same energy as the nostalgic. They were more fascinated. I could feel this vibe and it was a good vibe, but it was Ooh. it was a different thing. And, I, and I, I didn't even realize it until the next day when I talked to a friend who had been at the show and I was explaining this to her. And she goes, oh, no, no. They were, they were completely mesmerized and fascinated by it. It was like this whole new thing. I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting thing. I never heard of that. Well, what, so. what, what kind of music? Uh, what, what was it? Oh, we do, we do classic rock. We do uh, every Thing, uh, yeah. What we we like to do, what we call it, tributes to the tributes, because sometimes we have to compete against the tribute bands, and it's a little hard for us with with promoters and managers because they can understand Jimi Hendrix tribute band, you know, the Beatles tribute band, Led Zeppelin. Oh, I, I know what I'm getting, and I know how to sell that to the client. Uh, you know, a cover band that does you know multiple things. What what makes you so special? Well, we do try to put on a, a real 1970s rock show, and we got smoke and lights and lasers and all that yeah. other stuff. Um, uh, but we do a lot of like the harmony bands, so um, the Eagles, Doobie Brothers, and stuff like that. But we 
also do the, you know, a 15-minute tribute to David Bowie and to uh, the Rolling Stones and uh, to the Beatles. We do uh, triple shots of Steve Miller and uh, I guess a, a couple other guys, that sort of thing. And uh, and we do some stuff for the 80s, you know, and uh, things like that. So we try to put it all together. But we, we are strictly, you know, a multi artist cover band not not a singular type of uh, act like you've been doing for 50 years so so that's uh that's pretty crazy so now that you've played Jimi hendrix for 40 years do you ever get lost in his personality is it sometimes hard to be jimmy blue never never so you just like we were talking about earlier you just this is an, an an act you put the clothes on you put the makeup on and out you go and for uh for two or three hours you are uh jimmy hendrix and then uh you know get backstage take the makeup off and you're back to jimmy blow yeah i mean you have to be okay with yourself in life no matter what you do yes jimmy was uh, towards the end of his life everybody will agree jimmy was very spiritually based yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's what he would try to pass on to whoever dug him. And it certainly rubbed off on me uh, to get in, have a strong spiritual foundation about who you are. You can't go wrong in life. No, no. So you've played Jimmy for four decades or, gosh, almost five now. That's 13 years longer than Hendrix was alive <laughs> and, uh, you know, many years longer than his musical career. How does that speak to preserving uh, the relevance of of the artist and rock and roll in general? Uh, the, the thing is with Jimmy, he's a little bit different from any other artist, uh, especially rock artists, but certainly any other popular, let's say popular musical artists in the world. I, I bring this out in my lectures I do on Jimmy. It's that he was an American guru. That term, a lot of people are not familiar with that yeah, term. Yeah, go deeper and explain that to our you audience. Know what I mean? he, when Jimmy, uh, we haven't seen nothing in this country on that level, such a phenomenon in America since Bob Marley. And Bob Marley was actually Jamaican. He right, wasn't American. Right. So, I mean, meaning wherever Jimmy went, you know, he was treated with the respect of a Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Uh, as far as musically, he hated that because, of course, he was just trying to be a regular guy from around the block, you know, sort of thing. But this is how people respect, especially outside of this country. And, uh, so he was an American guru, and certainly when you look at the FBI files on this guy, when you look at what the government files had on this guy, and you read what they say, that certainly verifies the statement I just made. No matter what we may think, these people thought that this guy was really dangerous. Was dangerous, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Because he had the uh, ability to lead people in a direction that was spiritual and, and things, you know, countercultural and things like that. And it was, of course, there were other artists. There was John well, John Lennon. Lennon, what comes to mind is the, the same situation. Was, of course, he was English. But what made Jimmy different was that Jimmy was race mixing. That's a no-no. It's still a no-no today, but... Unfortunately. <laughs> in America, that's a no-no back then. I mean, we, the, America was just coming out of Jim Crow a few years ago. I mean, now here comes this guy who's attracting multiracial people, and uh, he's a gypsy, and he's talking about, you know, um, communal living and things. This guy's got to go. Mm. You know what I mean? And uh, so, yeah, uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, it's the unique. Yeah, because I mean, Hendrix and maybe Sly there in the late '60s, they're kind of the last black artists that are attracting a, a, a largely white audience, and and it's not after that that uh, you know black music kind of veers one way and white music veers another way and then till the 80s when you know you can get back to prince and basically he kind of you know puts them back together wouldn't you say yes good point Mm. not to delve too deep into that but do you think that's probably why uh, why jimmy didn't make it in america and he had to go to the uk to uh to to finally make it uh no no um see the europeans have a much more higher regard for this music than Americans. It's always been that way, especially black musicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, luckily, Chaz... Well, isn't uh, that because of race and the separation and that you weren't supposed to be listening to this stuff if you were a white kid? and uh, But in Europe, they didn't have those issues. Well, they had it, but it wasn't so prominent as it is here in America. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? They always had uh, the quote-unquote caste system. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, the class, yeah, the class system of uh, you know where wealth came from and stayed in the family and that. But as far as the race being an issue, that less of a problem than America, but still a bit of a problem. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so a lot of artists, uh, even in the fifties, especially jazz musicians, were going to Europe and doing very well, and were very well accepted in Europe more so than here in America. And that still goes on today, as a matter of fact. Oh, same with the blues guys. Uh, you know, yeah. the original blues guys that, you know, in segregated audiences and, and you know, after they made uh, a bit of money here and their time went, they'd go to Europe and, they, you know, they could uh, live uh, comfortably over there. Almost definitely. Don't forget the Beatles, the Stones, cats like that. They opened for Little Richard and a lot of the blues artists. They oh, yeah. Wasn't oh, yeah, they, yeah. Or oh, the Rolling Stones, you know, they, they refused to play unless Hal and Wolf would be on the show with them. So, yeah. you know, things like that. So that not the issue. So Jimmy goes to the UK and is completely accepted, whereas maybe it was just a little bit more, a little bit harder here in, in, in the States. Yes, and that's because his strategy of marketing was very well crafted, and this guy is not given the credit he deserves. Uh, Chess Chandler. Oh, Chaz, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's not giving the credit. He, to me, to Jimi Hendrix, uh, I bring this out in my lectures, and I, I emphasize this. Chaz was like Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson, okay? Quincy was able to take Michael's talent to edit it as a producer and to market it to the masses. That's why we know Michael Jackson as we know him today. Mm-hmm. Chaz was able to do that with Jimmy. Jimmy did not come to Chaz the way we know Jimi Hendrix. He was a raw blues talent. Right. And Chaz was able to craft his, take his ideas and craft him to make him. Now, this is a, another phenomenon that we very rarely see, if at all, in America. A pop progressive musician. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, there have been a few. There's, there's, uh, Todd Rundgren, who we meant, was talking about earlier, that's, he's one. He, when he had his hits, he was always known as a progressive musician. There, there have been a few. But for Jimi Hendrix, he was, keep in mind, he was very progressive player. What the experience was doing was progressive. But he was uh, pushed, marketed as a pop musician. 
pop rock artists. Yeah, when Chaz got a hold of him in 66 and um, right. moved him to the UK and then put uh, Noel and, and Mitch Mitchell together with him. So, um, And I do want to point this out. As you said, you know, you're know, you also a lecturer on Jimi Hendrix. You don't just play him in a tribute band. You go to uh, various functions and talk about Jimi as a, a piece, a lecture piece. So how did Jimi get his unique playing style by 1960? Was, was he like raw or, or as a blues and just had, you know, immense ta- talent. And then you're saying Chaz kind of took that and took it to the next level. Or was he like right on the cusp and Chaz saw that and then just pushed him over the edge? I think it's a combination of both, Christian. I, I like that description. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say it's a combination of both. Okay. So who, uh, who influenced him early and then late in that later moment before it happened? Okay, uh, well, Jimmy was what musicians call a sponge. So everybody, there's there's nobody in particular. Every serious musician is a sponge, is a thief yeah. and a sponge. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Good uh, artists borrow, great artists steal, right? Yeah, and and, and and the real conscious great artists admit it. Oh, sure. You know, don't try to pretend that they, you know. But the thing is, um, you know, he was soaking up anyone and, and everyone who came in his path. He would just steal it. Although he was Delta Blues based, of course, uh, but he was also influenced by the R&B, what we call, musicians call the R&B strokers. Those rhythmic strokers like Curtis Mayfield, mm. uh, Cornell Dupree, these cats can mm-hmm. get on a rhythm and wow. Yeah. Um, especially when you listen to Little Wing, you listen to these ballads. Well, I also emphasize Jimmy's ballads because a lot of people uh, forget forget about that. But you, you're hearing Curtis Mayfield. You're really hearing a lot of Curtis Mayfield influenced licks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was uh, he was very influenced. And then, like I said, uh, and like you said so very eloquently, is that Chaz came and just, you know, took that and just brought it all together into a package as a producer. That, that's what was necessary. Jimmy was, in, was not never able, even when he was a star, to produce himself and to package himself. Okay, okay. So when Chaz left, because I know they kind of had a falling out during um – uh, wasn't it Axis Bold as Love, right? And um, he just couldn't couldn't deal with uh, with with Jimmy's methodology in the studio. Do you think that hurt him, or was was basically did he out, outgrow Chaz and and move on? Well, that's the formal explanation. I I spoke to Chaz. Uh, thank goodness, uh, Chaz actually saw my Hendrix show in the nineties. It was just a few years uh, before he died, actually. Uh-huh. And uh, we had a, I must have spoke to him for three or four hours sitting at the bar. And uh, I'm taking. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't let that cat leave, man. (laughs) Yeah, uh, he wouldn't let me record him. But let me get get you another drink. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I didn't have to. Once he had that first beer, he wouldn't shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was was great. But that's the formal explanation of what you just said. But there's a deeper explanation, which, of course, I, I can't get into now, of why Chaz left Jimmy. But before Jimmy died, he got on the phone and left a message. He begged Chaz to come back. Mm. He realized that he was lost musically as a producer, and he begged uh, Chaz. Uh, what happened after that phone call, I'm not sure, but uh, certainly it's well known that he definitely is documented. He, he called Chaz again. So it, it, Jimmy recognized they really were a team together. Sure. Okay. All right. Sure. So, well, unfortunately, it didn't come to pass, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, Jimmy passed on, and that was the end of that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Kiss the Sky 
and how that experience has changed over the years you've been performing it. Because I, I think there are there are four incarnations that you do, uh, which also is, I think, really important to point out that it's not just you get up there and, and do some Jimi Hendrix stuff. You, you do four various incarnations, the four primary incarnations of Jimi Hendrix playing days, uh, the experience, of course, the Band of Gypsies, uh, Woodstock, and, uh, and then Isle of Wight, right? Yes, uh, or, or the uh, set of Isle of Wight, we prefer to say the Cry of Love tour. Cry of Love, okay. okay. All right, so, so for, for the audience, explain the difference between those four incarnations. Okay, well, just uh, as a note, I would say since the mid seventies, I was always doing all of those incarnations. Okay, uh, I just didn't have the full production like I do have now with Kiss the Sky. I, I was close to having that uh, towards the eighties, but I, it seems like it went to a brick wall. But thanks to uh, recently, um, my manager Mike Bacheski. Who's, who's just an, an amazing person. And now we got a nice, I, I guess you would call it a street team, of uh, an agent, Kelly, and a uh, PR person, Gwen, who I just can't live without these people. Uh, they put together the whole package. So we're able to present Jimmy from the beginning. Actually, even before Monterey, we're able to present Jimmy sitting in a hotel room, getting ready to go on stage with Wilson Pickett, practicing the Wilson Pickett song. And then we come out with Monterey Pop, and okay. then we um, do Woodstock, Band of Gypsies, and the Cry of Love tours with full costume, full backline of the era equipment and everything. So you can do a show with all four pieces, well, including this, the uh, solo opening, and just make costume changes throughout, right? Yeah, we do. We, we, we make the costume changes okay. and everything. Now, I hear, unfortunately, we're not going to get to see that on the Access Television World's Greatest Tribute Band's performance. Well, you'll get to see some of it. You won't get to see oh, Woodstock. Okay. Okay. Yes, you, you, you'll get to see that, yes. Okay. All right. Uh, so, of those uh, incarnations, which is your personal favorite? Monterey. Oh, um, yeah, because that's, the, yeah, that's the He moment. was hungry. He had, you know, matter of fact. I guess uh, that's a dumb question, huh? <laughs> no, not really, because some people prefer the band of gypsies. Some people would yeah. stop. But for me, the energy of Monterey is unmatched. Jimmy never matched that after that concert. And what happened was. I think that's you, when Pete Townsend was crying in his soup there. Oh, well, Pete, him and Pete Townsend were in heavy competition. So yeah, he had yeah, to, like, yeah. he had to, what we call in New York, he had to bring it. But, uh. If you see pictures, you go back to that era and you see pictures of Jimmy walking around before he's playing and talking and things like that. You see pictures with him with Brian Jones of the Stones. You know, just walking around, right? Yeah. Jimmy was out of his mind because he was nervous. High. With the, the LSD, hash. Up. I mean, just he was gone. So luckily, Chaz was able to take him in the back, shake the mm out of him. And say, look, we worked this hard. You do not want to blow it. Calm down. Relax. Do not get up there and blow it. And luckily, that they had that talk. Because probably Jimmy would have been all over the place. Uh, musically or whatever, playing-wise. The chops wouldn't have been there. He was lost. He, was, he could hardly stand up. Because he was popping all of this stuff during the day before he played. And, you know, because he was nervous. 
And Chaz had to bring him back down to earth. He said, look, dude, I will shoot you if you blow this. <laughs> yeah. yeah this, it was uh, an, an enlightening moment for a lot of people. Uh, I know that really broke the who in America as well. Mamas and the Papas were, you know, they were already kind of getting big at that point. Gosh, the uh, dead were on that show uh, as well. But they don't get bigger until uh, until the seventies, but uh, but uh, yeah, Monterey Pop's pretty special, and of course, you know, I mean, to me, Otis Redding just steals that show, but you know, Jimi Hendrix is 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 right there as well. So uh, that's a that's a really special moment. In fact, for the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project or the podcast, um, we're we're going to use Monterey um, as a, a stepping stone for a, a couple of episodes uh, right now because it it is so quintessential essentially important for uh, the history telling the history of, uh, of rock music so wow that's pretty that's pretty cool so all right so um, now uh, in one of the incarnations I think uh, banded gypsies you actually get to play with Billy Cox right well he's not uh, a part of our show we we do uh, we actually plan to be doing some gigs along with his band so I'll be playing with his band and then we'll open for him with kiss the sky mm-hmm but no, he's not playing with uh, Kiss the Sky. He has done a few guest star thingies. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah, past sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. What's uh, uh, what's it like playing with Billy? Oh, it, you know, over the years, I've been an avid researcher on Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I've spoken to various people who knew him, who were very close to him. And the, the missing links, I call them, were Chas Chandler, uh, Velvet Turner, who a lot of people are not familiar with, and Billy Cox. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness I've been able to spend lots of time with all three of those people, especially Billy. He's like a big brother, him and his wife, Brenda, big brother and sister to me, Uh, you know, to get to fill in the gaps on what this guy was about. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, So I have it from the beginning with Chaz. I have it while he was making it with Velvet Turner. A lot of people are not familiar with this guy. Velvet was right there with Jimmy. And a a lot of little thingies, he explained a lot of of what the bios leave out or the bios can't explain. Velvet has the explanation. And then there's Billy Cox. So Billy is an amazing player, too. A lot of, uh, especially musicians, will listen to the Band of Gypsies album and think Billy's playing simple things like that. And it wasn't until I got with him and actually saw what he was playing and the little subtle little things that he does to make me realize how great this cat really is, man. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where do you think uh, Where do you think Hendrix would have gone had he uh, had he lived? Well, he was uh, very interested in going into a jazz direction. He was trying to do a few things. He was going to start a band uh, uh, or add Steve Winwood as a guitar player, keyboard player to his band. He reached out to Paul McCartney as a bass player for another band with Miles Davis and Tony Williams. <laughs> Understand what I just said. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Miles Davis, Paul McCartney, Jimi Hendrix. Well, um, he's, yeah, matter of fact, you can Google it. Yeah, I, 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 we, we constantly say Paul McCartney is, is a sick musician and an, oh, a god on the bass. Yeah, totally. Well, he's a multi-musician, too. He's playing drums on quite a few Beatles tracks. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I mean, of, of the four Beatles, he is the pure musician. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, there's no two ways about that. We always give props to, to Paul. And, you know, uh, you know, John for the attitude, uh, for the feel, um, you know, George for the sensitivity. Uh, and, of course, you know, the secret special sauce is, is Ringo. I mean, you know, the guy's left handed plays right-handed he has to 
cross over and do crazy things. So, of course, you get originality that way, you know. So, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a special special little uh, group there. But but Paul McCartney on bass uh, in a in a band with those guys. That uh, boy, I'll have to wait to get to heaven to see that one, huh? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, actually, you can Google that that famous telegram that he reached out to uh, Paul McCartney with. Um, and Paul actually says to this day he never got the telegram because uh, one of his aides wrote, wrote him back and said, Paul's on vacation. Oh. But yeah, a lot of people are not aware that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were very close friends with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You know, those guys were astounded. I mean, that's well known, uh, the, the Bag of Nails uh, show uh, and the Seville show. Uh, where uh, where he comes out and opens the show with Sgt. Pepper three days after uh, the album dropped. But that Bag of Nails show, when when he comes uh, back from Paris and uh, and you know the experience plays you know for real in the UK for the first time, a lot of those guys are are in the uh, the audience, and um, you know everybody is just just completely blown away this this guy took it took rock music to a, a whole new level and he pretty much starts several genres that night uh that will come in come to fruition over the next decade so um pretty that's special. point that's an excellent point you just said yeah wow yeah so uh okay so let's get let's get to the world's greatest tribute band now you've never been to the west coast to play before right Oh yeah, I've played at the Starwood Club. Oh in yeah, the late oh the Starwood uh, Club, man. Yeah, that's I've, I've, I've been that's there. the first club I ever walked into when I was eighteen really? years old. Yeah, so in fact, I the first time I ever uh, went to the Starwood, I'd gone to the Queen concert, saw Queen. That was my first concert. Go to the Starwood. I'm eighteen years old. It's a Tuesday night. It's dead inside, and then all of a sudden. Uh, Brian May walks by me and I just stop and he smiles at me and walks on up to the VIP section. So, yeah, yeah. I've played the whiskey. I headlined the whiskey several times uh, really? okay. and all that. Yeah, yeah. I, I gave it a shot in my 20s. And, um, you know, I always had a day job. And by the time I turned 30, I decided to chase after some some tech money. And uh, that's what brought me to San Francisco. But uh, so now I'm trying to combine the two pieces, a little tech and a little music and, you know, hence the rock and roll archaeology project but uh let's get back to you so you're coming out here uh and uh, now I, I believe you're just you're just playing the um the whiskey show the the access television world's greatest tribute band what date is that that's november 16th okay and that's a live performance right yes Absolutely live, and so those of you on the on the East Coast, you actually get to see it live. Us on the West Coast, I'm sure it's a little tape delayed, but uh, that must be uh, pretty pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Katie, uh, what they're doing with that whole thing, presenting tribute bands at their finest. Uh, a lot of respect for her. Yeah, that's uh, uh, she's done a good job. I mean, this is, I think, her fourth season that uh, she's done this now. No, I think it's a little bit longer. Is it? Uh, is it? Oh, yeah, some like seven. Oh, seven is it seven seasons? seasons? Oh, wow! I've seen oh, a, I've yeah. I've seen a, a couple of them. I'm really looking. I missed the the Prince one uh, last week because I I had things to do. But uh, and that's the other thing. They you get to show once. If you don't record it, you can't pick it up again. You can't go and find it. Oh, in, really? Uh, okay. Oh, well, yeah. Well, there's there's a reason. It's because of the licensing for the for the songs and television and and oh, all oh, of that that goes with. That it. So they sense. I think they replay 
play it once and and that's it. And uh, you you can't go and find it uh, in the access television list of shows on your your uh, uh, pay per view. But uh, so are you pretty excited about that? Yeah. Well, uh, look, it's another gig. <laughs> <laughs> Just another gig, man. It's all good. I, I mean, the, the excitement. I'm a little bit too old to be. Yeah, so. I know. You've been doing this for 50 years, man. So. Oh yeah. It's, a, it's another gig. I, I'm excited about reaching more people about what this guy was about. I contend that he hasn't been presented right since he died. Really? Really? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy had a swag. That's why he loved New York. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he went all over the world, but he always had to come back to New York. As a matter of fact, uh, Billy tells me a story where they tried to get him a few times to move to uh, Billy's located in Nashville. Hey, man, why don't you, you know, get around. Jim said, I got to get I got to get to New York. I got to go back to New York. It was a certain vibe in New York that he fed off of. Well, it's the center of the universe uh, at that time, for sure. Yeah. You know, um, so he always considered himself a New Yorker. They have all of these things happening with him in Seattle. But Jimmy considered himself a New Yorker. OK, um, so, I mean, there's a certain swag that he had on stage and that affected his guitar playing and his vocal delivery. Hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, so I and plus there's a word that scares people, which is why um, <laughs> I had to I was so happy to hook up with Kiss the Sky because then I could drop the name Voodoo Child, which I had for 40 odd years because that, that kind of like scares people. <laughs> oh, because it's got the word voodoo in it? Voodoo, yeah, sure. <laughs> Whatever. You can think it the wrong way. So Kiss the Sky is a little bit more mass-friendly. Fan-friendly? Fan All right. Yeah, you know, so, but I mean, uh, I say that to say Jimmy had a mysticism about him, just like Miles Davis. When Miles Davis hit the stage, there was something about it. He didn't have to play a note. It was something about him. And it's a, that was the same way with Hendrix. When Hendrix hit the stage, when he was on... You know, uh, when he was definitely on as a musician, you know, there was a mysticism there. Yeah. It's an innate and, an innate quality of that particular human being was born with it. And, yeah. and it, it, it was it's like a shining light that uh, that just comes on. Right. Sure. It's uh, I don't know. The only word I know is mysticism to call it. I mean, people may call it different things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has to, that's so important to his sound. That affected his sound. Uh, so, I, like I said, I don't think Jimmy's been presented, in my opinion, my little worthless two-cent opinion. He hasn't been presented right. And then, so we make sure we do that with Kiss the Sky. You're going to see Jimi Hendrix the way he presented it. So that is your mission, really, is to try to present him as more than just a rock guitar player there's something more there and then and because of your in-depth knowledge a personal connection you know the love of uh, of the music you you get a real a real sense of what this guy was like when you're standing up on stage is that fair to say yes totally you know not only that you're seeing a performance of what hendrix was about from a guy who knows his music better than anybody Meaning, I can go into the studio and on all of the instruments and vocals, reproduce his sound. It's very important. And in most cases, exceedingly reproduce his sound. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, mm-hmm. I've done an off-Broadway play, which I'm reviving now on Jimmy. I've uh, The avid research I do on Jimmy is just un- unbelievable. I mean, some of the, the stuff that, that I have on Jimmy, is, you're not going to find in the bios of the documentaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, this is, this is the real deal here about what this guy was about. Well, I got one more question for you, and that is, what's your favorite Hendrix song to play live and why? I would say Voodoo Child's Slight Return because that song just oozes with mysticism. (laughs) 
there you go. We'll we'll end this. We'll end the show with that. <laughs> Jimmy Blue, uh, I want to thank you for your time. It's been great discussing your life uh, and uh, your dedication to uh, the legacy of Jimi Hendrix. I've seen some of your videos and listened to some of the songs. You do a great job. I really look forward to seeing the Access Television performance here uh, again. What is that time and date? That's November 16th, going around like 7.30 p.m. Yeah, check your local television channels. Make sure you guys have access television. If you do, sit in front of your television, and and if not, make sure you record it because you won't be disappointed. So, Jimmy, uh, really, we appreciate your time here at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, and uh, we look forward to uh, getting together with you and seeing you uh, sometime. Christian, uh, let me say, man, I really respect what you're doing with this project and i wish you the best man you're you're doing something that's very well needed uh in today's music scene much you know best wishes to you man thanks thanks a lot jimmy that's great all right folks we're gonna head off uh and you guys keep up the rocking well she's walking through the crowd with a circus mind that's running Butterflies and zebras and That concludes my interview with Jimmy Blue. We hope all you diggers out there were able to appreciate that kind of insight, dedication, and professional approach that separate Mr. Blue and Kiss the Sky from everyday dime a dozen tribute acts. He is something of a rock and roll scholar in his own right, and we were very pleased to have the opportunity to sit down and speak with him. I hope it was just as enjoyable for you listening to the interview as it was for me conducting it. He's a great guy with a lot of talent and rock knowledge. And a reminder, if you're in Southern California on November 16th, 2016, go check out his set at the world-famous Whiskey-A-Go-Go in Hollywood. It's sure to be a rocking good time. If you can make it, catch the live broadcast or set your DVR to record it on Access TV. Check your local listings for airtimes or look for them at access.tv. You can also learn more about Jimmy Blue and Kiss the Sky on the band's website at kissthesky.tribute.com. Check out band member bios, free media samples, tour and lecture dates and more. All right, that's it. We hope you had a good time and we look forward to seeing you on the next Deeper Digs in Rock. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. 
All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.